Welcome to Tales from the Bridge. This is episode 50. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode and all the episodes before. We're so happy to be here, and we're happy to be here with Chris Gebhardt from NASA Spaceflight today. We definitely nerd out about some rocket stuff, some space tech. Overall, we have a fantastic time hanging out with Chris. Definitely nerd out about some science fiction TV shows as well later on. All right, let's make our way over to the bridge. to have Chris Gebhardt with us on the show today. Chris is the assistant managing editor of nasaspaceflight.com. If you like rockets and space tech news, you should definitely visit their website. Also, nasaspaceflight.com has an outstanding YouTube channel. It has over 1,700 videos of launches, live streams, conversations with some very interesting guests. Chris was there for the launch of the Ariane 5 rocket that sent the James Webb telescope into space. So we'll definitely want to hear a little bit about that. And overall, he has a great amount of knowledge of all things that go up and sometimes come down. Chris, thank you very much for joining us today. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure. Uh, really happy to be here. And, and, and really love what you guys do and the conversations that y'all have. Yeah, thank you. Uh, well, I, I've got to ask right off the bat, um, what is, uh, what's got you excited right now? Because there's so much going on. There's so many companies uh, kind of coming up all over the place. Can you oh, yeah. tell us some projects and or some uh, what's going on out there? What should our listeners know about and what is exciting you? Yeah, so there's there's a lot of stuff that's very prevalent in the news, right? You know, NASA's new mega moon rocket with SLS and Artemis One. Hopefully that's off the ground by the end of this month. We'll see. Florida has a hurricane that might be headed for it now. Uh, so we will see how that happens uh, here at the end of the month. But, you know, there, there's a bunch of that. There's all the stuff with SpaceX and Starship's development and what that can do and sort of our, you know, revolutionizing the way we could explore or send things throughout the solar system. But it's really the the last part of that that, that really excites me. It's the throughout the solar system part because... For, for so much of my childhood and my professional career, it's really been the Mars explorers, those, those robotic explorers and rovers that capture, you know, hearts and minds and we personify them and, and are sad when they stop calling home because of, of dust storms and everything like that. But for me, that's what I remember. That was the vast majority of it. And then, you know, you had a mission to Jupiter, a mission to Saturn. It seemed like every once in a while, NASA or, you know, the European Space Agency would gift a mission to another planet um, when we didn't need it for Mars. But we're sort of starting to see that flip. And that's really exciting me because in the last year, we've had NASA announce two flagship missions to Venus to study its atmosphere, to study its interior. We've had the European Space Agency follow that up with a third mission to really explore all of Venus from the inner parts of its core to the outer parts of its atmosphere. You have the Decadal Survey once again calling for NASA to approve a mission to one of the outer ice giants, uh, specifically to Uranus with a lander, well, lander, an, an entry probe and um, an orbiter which would be the first time we've ever sent anything like that out to Uranus or Neptune. We just flew by them with Voyager 2 in the late 80s and have never really stopped at those planets to explore them. And the fact that those are getting very specific call-outs, that NASA is starting to 
zero in on other planets for exploration um, as we move into the next phase of the Mars plan. I, it's just a really exciting time to 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 be exploring the the solar system in general. And and you know we had last year we had the Lucy mission launched to some of the Trojan asteroids around Jupiter, which have never been explored, but are these potential little time capsules that Jupiter has grabbed from the outer solar system because of the wonderful ways gravity works and how the planets migrated to where they are right now. And th they are potentially these, these little time capsules for how the solar system formed and what the building blocks for all of our planets are. So it's on its way out there to do that. And then we've got the Psyche mission from NASA, which will go out to explore some other asteroids um, in, in the outer reaches of the solar system. So it is just a really, really impressive time uh, for science. And I very purposely didn't mention the telescope that I know you all want to ask me about, uh, as well that, that entered that, uh, that we'll, entered we'll the there. fray here <laughs> in, uh, in December. But yeah, for me, it, it's, it's those missions. It's, it's the fact that NASA is really, you know, choosing to do daring and technologically stressful missions in other planets. You know, we've seen in the last year, the, the wonderful success of that helicopter, that little mini helicopter they sent to Mars called Ingenuity. And that is really a precursor to the big Titan mission called Dragonfly, where NASA basically wants to send a, a, a rover, like the Perseverance rover, the size, the mass of it to Titan, but they want it to be a drone that flies itself from science site to science site on that moon of Titan. And that's scheduled to launch here at the end of the decade. So like, yeah, it's a, it's a really exciting time in planetary science. So a lot of this really does come down to cost, really, is is the SpaceX is able to change the game in terms of b making this more economical. And I mean, what does that what does that mean? Like, what, what does it mean when we have Falcon, you know, and Falcon Heavy and eventually s s Starship? Like, what does that mean for us? Yeah. So one thing, the, the first and foremost thing that it means is that if other companies want to remain competitive, they've got to abandon the more expensive systems that have been our heritage systems since, in some cases, with the Delta and Atlas lines, uh, you know, they can trace portions of their lineage all the way back to the very beginnings of the space age in the 19, in the 1950s and 60s. So, you know, we, we've already seen United Launch Alliance uh, stepping away from the Atlas and Delta lines to create the Vulcan, which utilizes engines from Blue Origin. Um, theoretically, that rocket is going to be price point competitive with the Falcon 9 and the Falcon Heavy systems. I'm purposely going to leave Starship out of that equation for a second um, because there's also another interesting thing that we that, that we see w w with this. And and but I'll but I'll complete that. You know, we we see the European Space Agency pivoting toward more cheaper and uniform versions of their rockets in Vega and Ariane and those lines. We see the promises of Blue Origin with New Glenn, which I I really truly do hope that those promises come to fruition. The problem potentially there is that they are trying to compete with a system that Starship is trying to make obsolete. Um, and obviously there's a part of this where the Falcon family will keep flying because 
until NASA really, really, really gets comfortable with crew on Starship Dragon is here to stay. We actually just saw them uh, talking about, you know, some more contracts with SpaceX for the space station's life extension out to 2030. So, you know, Falcon is going to be here to the end of the decade, definitely for the International Space Station program uh, and, and maybe beyond to the commercial space stations that evolve from there. But there's a tricky balance where, you know, when when ULA, for example, started to develop Vulcan, well, that was right around the time that SpaceX started to develop Starship. And of course, there's still a lot to be proven with Starship, but there is some truth to the statement that if you're trying to compete with the systems that SpaceX already has, you're potentially behind the game because if Starship works, wow. If Starship works, wow. Do you think it's going to work? I think I think it's going to work. Yeah, I think it's going to work. Yeah. I mean, might not work the first time. Um, you know, uh, you know, I definitely wouldn't be expecting a miracle on on the first yeah. orbital flight, but that's more just the realism of if you go back in history, only three rockets have ever attempted have ever succeeded in making it to orbit on their very first flights if they didn't have significant heritage hardware from rockets that came before. Uh, the Proton rocket from Russia is one of them, and the space shuttle is one of them as well. So, you know, the odds historically are not in their favor for first attempt, but that would also be historically in line with a lot of other providers that we've seen come online in the last few years where the first flight doesn't go to plan, but subsequent ones do. And now they're, I mean, Rocket Lab's first mission on Electron mm -hmm. didn't reach orbit, but they just launched their 30th flight today. So, uh, uh, Chris, if for, for our listeners who aren't, totally up to up to speed and as read in as you clearly are uh what is starship can you give us a, a little background what makes it special and, and why should we be paying closer attention to this program yeah it, that's a really great question so starship in, in in a nutshell starship is sort of everything that the space shuttle program in the late 70s promised it would be with a better possibility technologically of succeeding in that right the shuttle promised to be our, our truck to space, be able to haul these immense payloads up very routinely, make it like airline travel, and the reusability of it was supposed to make the initial cost of it right cost effective, but a huge part of that was launching commercial satellites, and after the Challenger disaster, when that went away, the shuttle was never going to be able to live up to that potential. But Starship is promising to be a fully reusable system. So the, the first stage booster would come back and the plan right now is that it will fly itself back to the launch site and be caught by arms from the launch tower that will reach out and grab it out of the air as it's descending under its own rocket power. It's really cool and really 1950s, and we can delve a little bit more into that too. Uh, and then the, the ship parts would be the parts that are kind of reconfigurable. So they've got cargo-only versions of these ships for just you know bringing satellites into orbit and releasing them. They've got crew-only variants of these ships. It is the ship and system that has been chosen by NASA as the lunar lander for the Artemis program and the return 
of humans to the lunar surface. So this is not just a system that's out there on paper and a, a dream of Elon Musk. NASA has bought into this and it is our ticket, literally our only ticket to the lunar surface at this point um, for the Artemis program. So there's a, there's a variant of that. Um, they call it they, I think they call it Lunar Starship. I really wish they would call it Moonship because, come on, Starship, Moonship, you know. But, um, and then the other really cool thing, and, and this is what sort of to your question, Sam, makes it the the sort of the sort of holy grail of of, of rocketry. There's a fuel tanker only version of Starship as well because the way you get Starship in its lunar, human lunar landing system configuration to the moon is after you put it into Earth orbit, it's used too much of its fuel to get to the moon. You have to refuel it. So it has to go dock to a tanker in orbit, refuel itself, and then it can take itself onward to the moon. But it is that element of it that is the key. Th that element is the game changer because if you the, if the promise of this system is it, if you can refuel this thing in, in Earth orbit, it is capable of delivering 100 metric tons anywhere in the solar system in one ship. And to put that into comparison, the SLS rocket from NASA, which when it launches is slated to be the, the, the most powerful rocket ever launched in the world, can take 27 metric tons to the moon. And that includes the spacecraft, that includes wow. the, the stages, that includes all of that as well. And Starship could do 100 metric tons to any location in the solar system. So this just changes the infrastructure of the solar system completely. Uh, the International Space Station, obviously, we're letting that one go soon. Um, mm -hmm. So we see different spaceships, or sorry, uh, stations uh, orbiting Earth. We're going like, if we're going on the moon, we're going to bring the proper machines to maybe utilize uh, the materials on the moon itself to build more. So this is the project that changes what infrastructure in, in the solar system looks like uh, from my understanding mm -hmm. so i imagine a lot of people are just like can't wait to find out or i mean as soon as this thing works it's just like boom we're gone we're we're off this rock almost <laughs> it could be um i i think my my experience with the industry is i love the enthusiasm of that but it might take a few years after first success to get there but the fact that we're even able to legitimately say that sentence a few years is is mind-blowing like if it, you know i'm in my early 30s and if you asked me 10 years ago will there be humans on mars in your lifetime my answer was i hope so my answer is now oh yeah i'm pretty sure unless something goes catastrophically wrong with the starship program yeah there will be and potentially within 10 years that's a and, and that would be the Kennedy-esque aspirational goal, I, I think, to that one, but doable with some of the technology and systems we've got coming online. Is there new technology that's attached to this program that that presents a risk? Yes, um, uh, yes. So the the system in in its entire conception is designed, including the ship, the portions that will carry humans, are is designed to land under its own propulsion basically the same engines that ignite to get it to orbit are the ones that have to ignite 
once it's down in the atmosphere to slow it down for landing. So if you think back um, about a year and a half when SpaceX successfully did a hop test with one of these ships and it, it, it shot itself up about 10 kilometers into the atmosphere, belly flopped back down to the ground, but then relit its engines and did this pendulum swing to right itself and then land. That's basically how they have to land on Mars to begin with. And that is kind of how the landing sequence has to go when they come back. Although the plan is also to catch the ships with the tower arms uh, as well as the booster when, when they come back. So, you know, the, that is a really, really, really significant difference to how space flight has been done uh, since since human spaceflight began in 1961, where you know primarily we we come back in capsules under parachutes, you know, from the U.S. to the Soviet Union. That is just and and to China now. That is how most of the landings occur. The shuttle used to be the oddball, right, coming back like a plane and landing on a runway. Starship is next level shuttle in in that you know pushing that boundary and pushing that envelope but the idea is how do you make it rapidly reusable and and the goal that they've sort of stated is they want to be able to fly the ships once a day and fly the boosters three times a day um so they want to be able to rapidly eventually turn these things around for those kinds of flights especially those fuel tanker flights up to low earth orbit to refuel the other ships um they're going to need to have a really high cadence so all of that sort of comes together to say the, the the engines that they're designing the raptor 2 engines are the new technology the part of it that is probably the most riskiest just because of how much they are going to have to be relied on um now there's a great history of making really 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 reliable engines for human spaceflight the shuttles rs-25 engines which were called the space shuttle main engines throughout the shuttle program only suffered one in-flight failure and that failure wasn't even the engine it was a faulty sensor on the engine that caused the engine to think there was a problem when there wasn't one. So in reality, 135 shuttle flights, take one of those out for Challenger since she didn't make it to orbit on her last flight, 134 flights, and we never had a problem realistically with the engine. So making them super reliable can be done it's not easy to do. Um, and there's going to have to be a lot of, and that's why SpaceX is sort of doing this too. There's going to have to be a lot of cargo and payload only missions as people and agencies that have to certify this vehicle for lunar flights to eventually ferry people from lunar orbit down to the lunar surface. A lot of testing and a lot of flights are going to have to take place here um, for that certification to come for the system. So like, let's think about this to the next level. You know, this is this is a science fiction yeah. show, and, and, and this is kind of where our heads go, is let's say we can reliably land a starship on Earth, on the moon, on Mars. Um, that's where we think about. We think about those three. But what else? Like, where else in our solar system should we be going? You know, like what, what else is cool that we should be doing as soon as we have that capability? Yeah, um, to this I say everywhere, and this is where Starship could, could be a really, really fun science fiction uh, exercise, or, or enterprise, I should say, ha ha ha. Um, so, huh. yeah, so 
one of the cool things about Starship is because of the way it's sort of designed, there's there's a lot of potential flexibility in what you put in as the payload, including actually making the ship its own payload. Because what you have is a ship that's nine meters in diameter. Um, and A, that's just huge from a payload capacity to orbit in, in terms of the size of the payload, the, the width of it. And it's also got a really, really tall payload compartment. I mean, this thing can take a really... It's basically... It has the same internal volume, roughly, as the entirety of the International Space Station in just one ship in one launch. So Whoa. that's what Whoa. we're talking about it being able to lift something that massive in one go. So what if you then took out all of that stuff and made it a telescope? Well, now you've got a nine meter telescope that you can throw into orbit. Hubble's two. Let's put that into perspective, right? Because that, I mean, of what the shuttle could carry in its payload bay, right? And that was huge for the time. You know, Webb had to do all these massively complex unfolds that were all single point nail-biting failures. Only time in my life where the launch has not been the most nerve-wracking part of a mission. Um, and, you know, but, but it had to do all these massively complicated unfolds to get to the size that it needs to do. You could stick the mirror right in Starship and make it a telescope. You could make a single Starship its own space station in low earth orbit and you've got a space station the size of the international space station which it took over a decade to construct in one launch so now wow. send that to venus now send that to jupiter now send that to the moons of saturn and outward to uranus and neptune now and and starships can even be the probes themselves instead of launching the probe they become the probe right outfit them with the sensors and the scientific equipment or have a little deployable shelf that comes out you know of of them now all of a sudden you're talking not just about a dramatic decrease in the cost to send missions anywhere in the solar system you're also talking about a dramatic decrease in the cost to build the satellite because your rocket becomes the satellite. Carl Schrader, who is a, a Canadian science fiction author, talked about taking Starship, sending it to Venus, and bringing it down into the atmosphere to the point where it's one, where it's it's the same as our atmosphere, and just let it be buoyant and let it float there and uh, mm -hmm. and utilize you know whatever you could you could study the atmosphere there for days months long time mm -hmm. yeah and and you know the that sort of idea of because of how dense venus's atmosphere is it, it's not it's not overwhelming from a technological standpoint to start thinking about things that can float there for a few days you know we're still technologically you know i man science fiction wise i would love to see the floating cities on venus one day but you know i think technologically we're a little bit far away from there but what you just said like I mean, that that's exactly right. And, you know, it's one of the proposals that NASA has for, for their mission that will actually enter the Venusian atmosphere here. It, it's going to be a very, very, very slow floating descent down to the surface um, because we can take advantage of that with the technology that, we've, that we have now that we just didn't have back in the 60s and, and 80s. Basically, the last time we cared about Venus in a large degree. So yeah. now we have the with the tools to be kind of slow and gentle, which works really well for probing Uranus. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm sorry. I have oh, to yeah. That. No, when I saw the name of the mission, there was definitely that, like, yeah. Yeah, could, why did we have to call it Probe yeah. for yeah. a mission? See, this is why I call it Uranus. Like, yeah. <laughs> well, I have to imagine that a lot of people in your industry just want to rage on people who make those jokes, so I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I think a lot of us, though, just, just I think a lot of us like it, too, because it... it <laughs> You need levity, right? That's true. That's true. So, Chris, I, I'm curious. Like, what was your path to to? Uh, can I say like space journalist? Is that okay? Yeah, yeah. Because uh, it's just fun to say. And and I mean, can you, it's it's your beat that you cover is really fascinating. You're clearly uh, well read, and you've got a Deep Space Nine uh, in your background there. And yeah. uh, uh, so so. Can uh, can you do you mind sharing a little bit about yourself and what your path was here and 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 uh, and how you uh, you got what seems to me one of the best jobs in journalism? Yeah, well, so I'll start by saying, yeah, I I I, I am very fortunate to have the job that I do, and there are you know those moments I think in every profession right where you get caught up in in certain things, you get caught up in scrubs, you get caught up in delays, and you can start to get you know, you can start to feel bad. You can start to, you know, internalize that a lot and get upset with it. And then there's usually always a centering moment of just like you, you have a moment when everything's packed up and you just like look out when it hits you and it's like, stop complaining. You're, you're standing three miles away from a rocket that was trying to go to space. Stop complaining. You have an amazing job. You know, like it, it, and, and I do, I absolutely love my job and, you know, I, but I think it's important to, to acknowledge that as well, you know, that there are those moments that recenter you um, to how, how fortunate you are uh, sometimes to have the jobs that you do. And, and that does happen for me as well. My, my sort of path to space honestly began, uh, well, my mom used to joke about it, uh, began in utero. Um, so as she joked, she was a huge Star Trek fan. So, uh, in, so she would always watch the original series when it would come on the local CBS station at four o'clock on, you know, weekday afternoons when, when she was home from work and and she used to joke with my dad if he doesn't come out humming the theme song something's wrong so you noted there's a deep space nine behind me over my shoulder so yes i am a star trek fan since before birth um and then totally grew up with next gen ds9 voyager and enterprise and um uh, so my mom was really responsible for the scientific uh, or the, the, the science fiction passion for me. And my dad was responsible for the, sci I call it the science reality um, portion. Um, he was uh, coming, his parents moved from, uh, moved down to South Florida after he went to college. And his first s summer driving back, driving to the new home, brought him through Florida on the week that they were launching Apollo 10 to, on the dress rehearsal to the moon. So he camped out overnight in Titusville and watched Apollo 10 lift off to the moon, and he never missed another human space flight uh, with his own eyes from that day um, until the day he passed. And he gave that to me as well. Um, and there's a photo um, that I had at one point where he, it, I was 10 months old and he's holding me in his arms and my mom took the photo 
and we're standing across the river in Titusville and the date on the photo is the date that Discovery returned to flight from the Challenger disaster. So I too have technically seen every US human space flight with my own eyes since the day I was born, even though I really don't remember a lot of them because I was way too young, but I have technically seen them. So, and I grew up here. I grew up in Florida, just, just north of the Space Center. Um, you know, we always went down for shuttle missions with crews, but I, I was very fortunate to be able to just walk into my backyard and see the satellite missions lifting off um, from the Cape. And, and then uh, I applied to a bunch of universities uh, in many different countries. And the one that gave me a full scholarship was right here in Central Florida. So that's the one I took uh, and that's what I went with. Um, and it was while I was in college that I found uh, NASA Spaceflight. And as happens, sometimes you go down rabbit holes. And I was clicking on links and eventually found the original coming soon homepage for NSF, where Chris Bergen was asking for anyone with writing experience who wanted to cover either the shuttle or the ISS. Those were the two programs back then, shuttle or ISS, and my, how we have grown since then. <laughs> um, and uh, I sent him a message and applied and he gave me a test article to write and hired me right then and there. Um, my actual background has nothing to do with engineering or spaceflight or anything like that. My actual degrees are in cultural studies and English composition and rhetoric. There's some transferable <laughs> skills there, I'm sure. Yeah. Oh, there are. Yes, but uh, but no no formal no formal journalism degree and no no formal engineering training at all. I self-taught myself everything I know about the shuttle and all these other rocket systems. Well, it's, it sounds like you grew up with the future happening in your backyard. That's hard to pretty escape. Much. It's pretty amazing. Uh, what do you think the chances are of you reporting from space? Oh, I would go in an absolute heartbeat. Um, I hope those chances are rapidly increasing <laughs> shall we say um i think we're actually recording this on the anniversary of the inspiration for crew launch uh a year ago from the cape where i where i really admit that was the first time i i watched people walk across a crew access arm and get into a rocket and went oh my god they're me like they have the same degrees that i do they're not you know they're they're not army test pilots or, you know, medical doctors with these massively impressive and deserving careers to be an astronaut, right? Like, th this is me. Like, I see myself walking into that spacecraft. And I mean, honestly, that meant, that meant an awful lot to know that that possibility was there. And I, I, I would go in a heartbeat um, if, if offered. Um, I would do it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, well, you're talking to, to a bunch of other guys who happily would, too, right I think, right? <laughs> yeah. I would hope so, right? Like, your, your show is Tales from the Bridge. <laughs> uh, oh, my preferred way of getting up there? Uh, so I have to answer this historically first before I go with the current day systems. Um, I, I, I would honestly, knowing everything about it, I, w I would get on a space shuttle um, and, and ride that to orbit and come back. Mm. Uh, to the runway. Uh, I, I, I would do that knowing everything we know about them. Um, 
I mean, right now, I mean, I gotta say, like, I mean, the dragons are the are the way to go, right? I mean, you, I mean, it's the sleek first class ride. You get it even thanks you for flying dragon um, <laughs> when when you get to orbit. <laughs> um, uh, I think it says thank you for flying dragon today or something like that when the when the first time it, it took Bob and Doug to orbit. Uh, so yeah, um, I mean, I, I I would honestly I would get in I I, I would ride dragon or starliner to orbit um uh especially based on starliner's performance on its second orbital flight test which seemed to go really really well i i, I would fly either of those systems to orbit well you know they're they're inviting youtubers in particular i mean well at least at least elon musk seems to be spending a lot of time with uh tim dodd from everyday astronaut like he seems to have an affinity for mm -hmm. folks who have a, a, a presence on on the internet you know like like youtubers maybe he'll take a liking to you and Invite you on one of his ships. From your lips to there Elon's ears. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, we'll I, let I, 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 we'll let him know. I don't, yeah, I don't <laughs> know what my honest emotion would be like, because they're, they're and, 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 and this is sort of the way, like, I think about it. This is where, like, my reporting side and my space romanticism side, you know, can can collide sometimes because. You know, for as much as I've got to report on the Orion flight that's coming up on Artemis 1, th there's a moment in that flight where it's going to get like 40,000 kilometers away from the moon on the other side of it. And its onboard cameras are going to have the Earth and the moon in the same shot as one another. And what would it be like as a human being to see that? Not to see Earth rise, just rise over the moon, but to see both of them out your window in the same shot like that that to me is like i don't know what my emotional reaction would be like i would be an absolute mess i mean the uh, i i we yeah, the observer effect would <laughs> the observer effect hasn't met me yeah. let's put it that way <laughs> if you could go and you could describe it eloquently i think you would add value to that mission you know like it's like a it's like sending william shatner up into space to 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 talk about it you know? oh it's my a gosh and what, I, I, when he came back, when he did that flight a year ago and he landed and he started talking, like I was literally sitting at this desk, at this computer, telling the people who couldn't hear me on the ground, shut up, shut up, he's talking, he's talking, you know, like we've got to, this is the moment you want to hear what yeah. William Shatner had to say about a moment. And I, I mean, mm -hmm. I don't know how anyone wasn't honestly moved by yeah. what he said um in 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 that moment i mean that was so perfect and ah nice nice tristan but, but it was shockingly early it was like he just got back from space and now he's signing autographs at fan expo the guy's got energy oh my gosh i know i hope to have that much energy wow he's, he's 91 now man i i hope to be that on the ball at 91 yeah I think one of the the important things about that flight, though, was what he had to say, right? Because for all the professionals who have gone up and described it, I mean, not an intentional quote from Wrath of Khan, but his was the most human. I mean, that was the most human reaction to seeing space I've ever heard. And for that, massive props to Blue Origin for arranging him to go on that flight. It might be washed out and you know like the other thing that we were sort of talking about after that was no one's ever had an interview that soon after coming back before 
right? It's always been hours after medical checks and sometimes rest and sometimes days, right? Before you could talk with them when the, when that raw immediate element of it had faded. And I was really glad we got it. Really glad we got it. Yeah, Chris, that was exactly our sentiment when we heard that. Uh, Marty, who's not here today, was actually quite emotional. Uh, I think like you were when, when he heard, um, uh, William Shatner talking about his experience up there and that's what we that's what we miss that's not what we've had because everybody who's gone up has been a professional astronaut and has been trained to expect all these things so the wonder and the, the glamour of it and and you know the unexpectedness of what it should feel like when you go up there is it's it's kind of washed out I think uh, so that's why they need to send you Chris so that you can go up and you can talk about it Chris has DS9 right behind him um, Starship's going to start building it in the next six years, I think. Uh, I actually have a Starship right behind it in plushy form. <laughs> oh, do, oh, wow. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Um, so I imagine you like yeah. other sci-fi as well. <laughs> I know that I, I haven't caught up too much on this show, but I know uh, Kevin, Sam, and Marty uh, also love uh, For All Mankind. It seems to really capture something real about what's going on sure. even today. Uh, and uh, there's got to be there's a, what what's what's got you watching all the time? What do you what movies are you excited about? Are there any books that you can recommend? Anything that you want to share with us that you're loving right now? Yeah, you know, I mean, man, I think what 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 a time to be a nerd, right? Like Star Trek has five concurrent series on the air. We've got Star Wars series on the air. We've got Lord of the Rings on the air. I mean, man, if you could go back to two thousand, me, man. <laughs> Just tell me 2022 is the year of the nerds for that one. But, um, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've got to agree with you. Like, um, I'm, I'm really loving, uh, in, in the current Star Trek world, really loving Lower Decks and Strange New Worlds. Um, those are really the two from the current ones that, like, I mean, I, I appreciate them all, and I cannot wait to get the entire Next Generation cast back for Season 3 of Picard. But, I, I mean, to be honest, the first season of Strange New Worlds I, I I don't know what the right adjective is. Um, it, it shattered my expectations, blew them out of the water. Um, and, and a really interesting first series where for me, it, it's really hard to pick out what the quote unquote weakest episode of the 10 were because they all kind of held their own for me in, in different ways. But, but outside of Star Trek, um, you know, I got to say, For All Mankind is the one that's really honestly captivating me because it it has a way... Uh, so so in general, I, I'm not a fan of these alternate... Of, of alternate realities of how the space race went because it, it's usually, to me, it, it, it doesn't... There, there's There's a there's a realism that isn't captured to it where for all mankind to me, not only captured like the raw emotion of, you know, the, the reversal of the lunar landing fortunes, but where would you go from there? Right? Like it was very real to me in episode two that man, if, if we had not run the, won the race to the moon, we would have turned on Von Braun so quickly as a political liability. Um, and I mean, that is exactly what they then, go to do right you know pushing the saturn 5 system harder than maybe it should have you know like there's a there's a lot of people who are just saying yeah it didn't have a launch failure because it just didn't fly long enough to have one um 
with that system and we see that in you know and then we see that happen in for all mankind and then the sort of extrapolation that they do from there to say okay if 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 from there we would have still gone to shuttle what would that have looked like in a continued space ace ray space race age that's a hard string of three words to say together apparently um and and then you know moving onward from there to mars it, it it's sort of done in this very grounded and realistic way where i never lost the overall emotional arc of the unforgivable moment of the soviets winning you know for for that series and and i really appreciate it for that grounded realism um Probably, which is why I also really, really loved The Expanse. You know, I'm, I'm sad it ended, um, but I'm glad they got to do the first six novels um, uh, before, the, before the novel, because the novels do a weird time jump after book six. So um, it's, it's nice that they were able to complete all of that before the, the time jump. And I think we can definitely say thank you, Jeff, for saving that one uh, for us. Yeah, I, I'm a huge fan of The, the Expanse and... and uh... I what I loved about it was was that it felt like an, an attainable future. Like it, we could, it felt like a a a that some version of that's totally plausible in terms of in terms of uh, uh, what might happen and what, what, how humans evolve in space. Because but it just they did such a good job, and the books do such a great job of grounding it in reality. There isn't some fantasy. I mean, they have the the was it the Epstein drive like, but it doesn't, um, but it doesn't sort of go out like we're we're gonna like you know wormhole our way across the universe and just do like it, there's no cheap FTL solutions here, right? Like it, it's, exactly. it really is like they really just took that idea of like making the engine efficiency so good, you know, and, and which is you know in some ways realistic to our future like you said it felt like it felt like something we could see you know you know what you might really like chris is uh, i don't know if you've read the apollo murders by commander chris hadfield i have not no so usually you wouldn't i wouldn't recommend literature by an astronaut um but it's i think you would like it i think folks who are real enthusiasts around the apollo um programs and and around realism and this is an alternate history um, a sci-fi kind of book that I, I, some people would really appreciate. I think you would really like it. I definitely have to check that out. This is the, you're, you're now the second person who's who's talked to me about that. So I definitely want to hear more about uh, the James Webb Telescope. And I mean, this is kind of the biggest thing to happen in so so long. I mean, rockets are interesting and starships exciting, but we're looking back and and discovering what the universe looks like, and, the, and we're not just looking at planets here we're not just looking at well we are just looking at galaxies but we're looking at many galaxies and now we're seeing like this is just unbelievable you were there at the launch of the james wood Tel telescope and this has got to be uh i mean was it life changing for you what does it do to your perspective on on watching something so important leave the earth yeah so i actually wrote about web professionally before it had its name um which for the reporter side of things is is quite a lot there aren't a lot who can there are there are a few of us who who, who can definitely say that you know that that sort of reporting spanned a good chunk of its time and there are some who can say that they were there reporting on it you know from the very beginning when it first became a thing in the 90s 
Um, you know, NASA and, and the European Space Agency and the Canadian Space Agency all had a really difficult time ahead of themselves with, with this launch um, because it hit, you know, during the, it ended up coming during the pandemic where travel and logistical nightmares in, sort of ensued. And for a couple, for, for a while there in the height of the pandemic, there were even questions as to whether there could safely be a media presence there and sort of as the vaccine rollouts started ha started happening and there was good movement on that front they were able to say okay yeah there are we we have 20 positions for the media and we have to share those 20 positions and figure out who gets to go um and i was incredibly fortunate and incredibly humbled to be one of those 20 who were chosen to be able to go it was a fascinating time to try to travel because it ended up right over the Christmas and New Year's holiday. Um, so, and the way you get to French Guiana, its launch site is you from the U.S. is you have to go to Paris first, and the flight connections basically mandate a layover in Paris going both directions because Air France is funny and they think an hour and a half is enough time to land at one airport, clear customs, get your bags, drive across the city to the other airport, go back through security and make it onto your plane. And it's like, yeah, I'll take the hotel room for one night, please, um, on, on that one. But, um, you know, there also wasn't a lot to do because this was right around the time when the Omicron variant was arriving and nobody really had a good handle on exactly what it was. So, you know, there was a lot of hesitancy around that. Um, if I had managed to contract it on part of the journey and tested positive in Paris, I wouldn't have been allowed to board the plane to go to Karoo. Um, So like there was a lot of stress that came with that travel. Um, as well as taking all of our broadcast equipment <laughs> and then desperately ch checking it over and 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 getting it to work and major major hats off to our, our our folks John and and Michael John you probably better all know him as Das um, for for getting that all up and running and working but then yeah we got to French Guiana we ended up with an extra day there because of a delay for upper level winds and. You know, what was really nice down there is the there was such a s energy and excitement throughout the spaceport there because folks who had been there and working on this campaign for months and months and months and months in isolation from their families and all the holidays they had missed because of the hassle of international travel back then um, with all the COVID restrictions, you know, there was such a sense of excitement and joy that it was here. The launch was finally here after 25 years of build and development and all the struggles of and, 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 and everything of getting the telescope there, getting it checked out, getting it fu finally fueled and getting it on top of the Ariane 5 for launch. I can honestly say no, nobody cared that it was Christmas Day. But I, I mean, every, you know, our families were more like, oh, that sucks that you have to be there. And it was like, I don't care. Like, it's, you know, if after 25 years, this thing launches on the 25th day of a month, I'll take that as a wonderful sign that it was meant to be. And it's all going to go according to plan. And, and, you know, it was an, er I mean, it was a really early morning, uh, getting up around four o'clock local time or just before there uh, to get into position and everything for the liftoff, which came about 825 local time. And 
you know, French Guiana is also this place where it's usually overcast. You usually only get to see the rocket for about 10 seconds before it's into the clouds. And while it was overcast, we got about a good 30 seconds of view of, of Ariane as, as she took off with Webb. And it, we were just the right amount of distance away from the launch pad that by the time she punched through the cloud deck and we couldn't see the rocket anymore, that's when the sound wave started to reach us. So from my perspective, I got to track the vehicle with our broadcast camera there on the ground, a, a like dream come true uh, to be there for a launch, let alone the, the launch of web of, of all missions, the launch of web. And, um, and I got to track it and do that part of my job. And then when there was nothing left for me to track is when the sound got there. And I just got to sit back and, close my eyes and feel it happen at that point. Yeah. So there, there are a couple of differences and, and rockets like Ariane 5 and the SLS that have really large solid rocket boosters do have a very different effect than a, a liquid fueled rocket like the Falcon 9 or the Falcon Heavy would. Um, so, so with Falcon 9, it's a really intense sort of concussive sound from the engine. So you can kind of feel your shirt moving in the sound waves sometimes, um, depending on how close you are, depending on atmospheric conditions on the day and how that's all moving. And you can hear Falcon 9 for, I mean, a good seven minutes after liftoff. You're still hearing the sound in the upper atmosphere and everything with that. Whereas the Ariane 5 and what it was like to feel James Webb leave the planet, the, the solid rockets are, you know, beating through your chest. You can feel the sound waves pulsing in your lungs as the concrete building that you're standing on is shaking under all of the, the force of the rocket leaving the ground. It's a, it, being there for a rocket launch is a very, very visceral experience. And, the, the closer you are or the more powerful they are, like SLS and Starship, uh, you know, uh, uh, Starship, really, they, those, they can almost become overwhelming in, in the sound and the intensity for, for everything. It's, it's just, it, it's incredible. And then the buildings you're standing around can also react and behave differently to different kinds of rockets. So like, for example, when, when like an Atlas lifts off from the Cape here in Florida and we're standing at the Kennedy Space Center, we just sort of hear the rumble coming off of the vehicle assembly building and sort of like bouncing, bouncing around. But when the Falcon 9 lifts off, the frequency of the engines is very close to something on the VAB. So all the panels on the VAB start squeaking and squealing like a Scooby-Doo swamp monster when a Falcon 9 lifts off. So like it's, 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 re it's really dynamic and, and can really just come down to what you are standing around when, when they lift off wow. sometimes. I, yeah. I have a friend uh, that I saw a video of who was watching a Falcon 9 launch in California. And, uh, mm -hmm. and he, and he's, he's a, he's both, you know, he's, he's a worldly guy. He's experienced lots of stuff. And, uh, and he was there and he was super excited about it. And the video shows him that he, he watches it take off. And I guess he was, I don't know, a little far away so that the sound got to him uh, a few seconds afterwards. And so he says, oh, there it goes. And then the sound hits him and he covers his ears and he ducks and covers, 
right? Like, and, yeah. and, and because it was so concussive as you described it, that it was shocking to him because he had never experienced it before. So this is why I kind of suspect that for you, it's very familiar, but for a lot of people, this would be pretty serious sounding. Oh, it will be. I mean, and, and, and they can be. And, and I mean, I, and I also always recommend to people be as absolutely close as you can. Um, cause sometimes it's worth it to sacrifice the view right at liftoff. Cause you're still going to see it like within 10 seconds. Right. But sometimes it's worth it to sacrifice a little bit of your view to be closer or to like position yourself in the wind direction so that the wind will carry more of the sound to you in, in that regard. Cause it is a very interesting experience. I want to do that. That'd be fun. Yeah. NASA socials. They're a great way to get really, really close Ooh, to the action. Okay. How does one do that? What do you, how do you get in on that? Um, so they put out, um, around big launches, they will put out a call for like a NASA social for this SpaceX cargo mission, this SpaceX crew flight, you know, um, Artemis one. And then, um, it's just, a, I, I don't know how they do the selection process, but I, it's, I, I, before the pandemic, I'll answer the last time I actually know the number to this, it was about 100 people per launch that or per NASA event that they would choose. I don't know if they've cut that back or not because of COVID. I know they just started doing them again, though, because they all arrived for Artemis 1. <laughs> We've got a, a Nova Scotia, not too far from us. There's a Actually, Chris was just writing about what's happening up there, so we're going to be able to get up there, Kevin. Go for a drive, watch some Ooh. rockets launch. Yeah, we actually did just write about this. We talked with the folks over at, uh, it's called Maritime Launch Services. Uh, they're just outside of Canso, uh, Nova Scotia. They just started breaking ground on the launch site. I think their plan is a suborbital test flight next year and then first orbital flight in 2024. Um, and, and it's not... Like it's not wow. like a small rocket. It's a it's a good like it's it's this class of rockets that launch the uh, Cygnus spacecraft from Northrop Grumman to the International Space Station right now. So it's a good medium lift capable rocket wow. there. And is that beneficial being on the northern hemisphere then? That that is that a part of the location being northern hemisphere helps get to a different location in orbit? Uh great great question. So um it uh it's so you can essentially attain so okay so basically orbits are you can't go lower than the latitude that you are at so like if your latitude is 45 degrees north the lowest you can get to the equator in an orbit is one that will go as far north as 45 and as far south as 45 um but one of the good benefits to being, and I, I chose that number for a reason because it's more or less where this one in Nova Scotia is, is you're equidistant between the equator and the North Pole. And that actually gives you a pretty good positioning to be able to do what are called low inclination missions, which is what a 45 degree orbit would be. And these really high inclination missions that some of the constellations that we're seeing have to get up and get into uh, these polar constellations and for polar missions. So it's actually pretty well suited in sort of 
splitting the needle between satellites that need to get close to the equator and satellites that need to get into polar orbits. And that's where a lot of the potential traffic could, could come from uh, for maritime launch services. And because they chose Nova Scotia as well, they basically just have the entire Atlantic as their launch range. So you don't have to worry about overflying land or upsetting upsetting other countries further downrange from from you, which is something we we sometimes mm. have to do when we fly over Cuba. <laughs> or like that one Starlink did where they just went straight through the Bahamas and landed the booster between two of the Bahama islands and it's like, "Oh, can you imagine being in one of the resort hotels and like, what's that? Oh, just a rocket booster landing on yeah, its drone ship." <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, if you come up to cover that, uh Chris, we'll have to we'll meet you there for the for some maritime drinks and rockets. That sounds good because we <laughs> definitely plan to be there for that one. Oh, I was actually going to yeah, more ask, ask ask you guys uh, the, a question that you all asked me. What what got you interested in space and science or and or science fiction? Well, I could tell you for me, um, what got me interested in space was science fiction. Uh, so, you know, very clearly my trajectory to being interested in all things SpaceX and NASA and, you know, that kind of stuff was Star Trek first, um, kind of like you, I think, although you have a very tangible connection to very real space launches, unlike most people. Um, so I kind of feel like, I feel like sci-fi is the gateway drug to real science, uh, a real science, like, um, real rocketry and, I, I'm very much in the middle of that normal curve. Star Trek and then every other nerdy show that you can imagine. Um, yeah, that's me. Uh, my, my path, believe it or not, was Lord of the Rings. Uh, and people are uh, going to go, what? Nice. But I, you know, as a kid, that was sort of the first big series that I, that I read. And I realized that's the, that was really literature-wise, was, I was a big reader as a kid and still am. And and uh, for me, I wasn't reading about people at work. I wasn't reading about cops and that sort of thing, which I just f didn't find that interesting. I remember my dad introduced me to Lord of the Rings, and that, that was it for me. And finding that imagination and that escape and that, that these other worlds really took me into, led me into sci-fi. So I always look, look at like uh, as fantasy as my gateway into, into sci-fi and it, through fiction and for me it was the it was the creativity of the storytelling and and the futurism and the imagination that went into that and then to find out that there's science behind a lot of that or there could be uh and so that for me was the big hook that's that's a job i want to read about you know that's a, that's someone at work i want to understand and and uh and it's a little outside my capabilities i'm not a math guy and uh, uh, you know i never did that well in science but uh, i i just gained a big appreciation for people who 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 are and and so that kind of took me here and then i moved next door to kevin and then uh you know that was it that was just uh time for <laughs> time to join a sci-fi book club and turn into a podcast here i am <laughs> yeah well i really appreciate the qu the uh, question chris I, I i i love that um for myself, getting into this kind of stuff, I think just comes from uh, a natural uh, desire to understand how the universe works. Um, and I think that's where this all comes down to, what, what it comes down to for myself. And with science fiction, I think science fiction tries to answer those things philosophic, philosophically and, 
and scientifically. But um, with the work that you're involved in and, and learning more about the companies that are putting out rockets now, which is blowing my mind when I'm hearing new company, new company, new rocket, new rocket, blowing my mind. That means that we're going to do yeah. something crazy in the next 20 to 30 years that is just going to be like, we've done it. We've we've done something special that I feel like has been a very long time since we've um, seen something new for humankind. But I, I was raised to believe that the universe was very simple to understand. Someone made it and you're lucky to be alive and you're going somewhere else when you die. And as soon as that broke, and I, sorry to go that way, but as soon as that broke, it was just like, oh my God, I need to understand how this works because that's the beauty. And, and lo- observing the universe and observing all the interesting, wild things going on in it and, and where we come from, that's where my curiosity and, and uh, my desire to learn comes from. And I owe it to people like you, Chris. That That's what I think so many people want. Where I think a lot of people are thirsty for for knowledge these days uh, more than ever well, before. Thank you so much. I mean, that, that, that means a lot to, to us. And, and I know it means a lot to everyone at NSF. We, you know, we... We love this stuff. We would, we would, be, this is what we would just be doing and geeking out to, even if it was, you know, just cameras for us and, and internal. But, you know, we'd, we'd rather share that and we'd rather have a conversation because, you know, to me, I, I, I used to teach as well, um, college level writing. And the biggest thing to me was always, we'll just ask the question. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're, we're so, we're so programmed into thinking that questions can be stupid that, Mm -hmm. you know, we don't, but, but that's what learning is to me. So ask the question and just ask the question in Google and you get the answer. And in fact, the the answers are coming through YouTube now. And, and with uh, NASA's space flight is your YouTube channel. Currently you've had over a quarter of a billion views, 266 million views of the, of the of the videos which is pretty phenomenal and your website yeah. is nasaspaceflight.com is that right it is indeed nasaspaceflight.com um and a forum section uh there as well uh for discussing all of these missions and flights and uh and adva- we got it we have advanced spaceflight concept discussions and and forum posts in there as well like warp drive ftl things like that um <laughs> you know that really dig down into some of the math of it that like i look at and i'm like I love that we're hosting this. I that that equation has no numbers in it. I'm out. Like you know, <laughs> um, but but it it is an absolutely uh, phenomenal place. And and yeah, um, th- you know, we, we we absolutely love doing it and and bringing all of this to you. I mean, we're we are the people who will go out and start broadcasting at 11:30 p.m. for an 8:30 a.m. opening of a launch window because we want to take you through fueling of a rocket. You know, um, that's what we like to do. Chris, thank you so, so much. This has been very informative. Uh, and maybe we'll chat again in the future uh, when there's more stuff. And that's the thing. This is not ending. There's going to be so much more happening, so much that you can tell us about and walk us through. And uh, we love your passion. And it's uh, it's just fantastic to, to, to have you on the show here. It, it was my absolute pleasure. And, and, I, and I love what you guys do in marrying the science fiction, science reality and literature all, 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 all together in, in this show. You know, I think. Well, thank you, Chris. Literature is so often overlooked as a, a key element to, to everything. So I, I really do oh, appreciate yeah. that you guys are, are doing that as well. 
Yeah. And if you're ever in Florida, let me know because we got some good water in holes down here and you can see a launch pad from them too. So let me know when you're here. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Chris, for joining us. And thank you, listeners, for joining us for episode 50. We're so happy to have you. Please follow us. Please write a review. Let us know how we're doing. We want to hear from you. We really appreciate our listeners very much. Follow us on Twitter. Let's have more conversations. Find our group on Facebook. Let's just chat. Let's talk about geeky stuff. Thanks for joining us. Until next time.